Welcome to Nubia. Nubia is the social activist arm of Narrative, which is the largest Africana studies classroom in the world. My name is Karen Hunter. I'm the founder of Narrative. And in this space, each person is required to bring a brick. Why? Because we can build the world in which we want to live, but we can only do so in community. And that's what Nubia is. Nubia is the community through which all things are done. Every week, we are in community around things that will improve our health. Dr. Greg Carr is here, it's where we live stream in class with Carr with a chat. It is where we are learning hieroglyphs with Dr. Mario Beatty. And it is where we are in community in groups to build the world in which we want to live. You're going to get a sneak peek into that and some of the conversations we've had with people like Howard French and Dr. Cornell West and others. It's a sneak peek. But if you want more, you have to join us over in narrative. And you can go to narrative.com to do that. And that's narrative with a K like knowledge, narrative.com. And we hope to see you there. Welcome to Nubia and welcome home. French, and let me introduce you to, to the great Howard French. Born in Blackness is the book that we're going to be discussing a portion of today. But I asked him an off-mic question, and he started answering, and I'm like, people need to hear this answer. So I'm like, can I hit record? <laughs> can, I, can I press live? And you said yes. Okay, so I asked you a question about uh, your phenotype, how you look. And I said, mm -hmm. you know, you are not ambiguous uh, in your blackness, but I think, you know, your your color color and, and, and your look could allow you to navigate the world easier than others. And I said, you know, why did you choose to throw a dagger in the heart of whiteness, you know, born in blackness in all of your work? Why did you choose to to dismantle and up in something uh, when you had wild mainstream success at the New York Times and probably didn't have to do this? Mm -hmm. um, thank you, uh, Karen. As indeed, we had begun to discuss this off 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 camera. And at what I had started to say to you is, however I present to people, you know, we can't, none of us can control how we present to people, right? So however I present to people, I was raised in a very culturally specific way. Neither of my parents presented any ambiguity about who we were as people, right? I was told from an early, from the earliest age, in fact, uh, it goes beyond what I was told. I was raised, surprisingly enough, this is possible in America, in an entirely Black environment. I was born in Washington, D.C. I didn't even know any white people until I was a teenager and my family moved to Boston. Um, uh, my parents uh, were, were proudly Black, and both of you know mixed background, but raised very consciously Black. One of the stories that's important in the nar narrative of my book about an ancestor who was the product of what was once called miscegenation, although this was forced miscegenation under slavery um, by a peer and political ally of Thomas Jefferson, a man who owned one of my ancestors and had a child, had a daughter by her. I was raised with this story. Um, you have to go back. I don't even know how many generations you have. You can go back as light-skinned as I present to find a direct ancestor of mine who has married a white person. Um, and so 
you know, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't have any conflict in me about who I am. Now, it's true that because of racism in our society, how people present racially often impacts or affects how they are received and what sorts of privileges and benefits they receive. And that is that that's that, that is broadly true, but it's also a little more complicated than that, right? Um, we can get into this more deeply in a moment, but I want to come back right away to your specific questions. Why did I take this on? I took this on because I believe in the truth. Uh, and I believe that there's a travesty in the way we have told the history of the world um, and that we need to unlearn the major sort of um, narrative lines of this history, which have cut Africa and have cut Africans out of the story. And I believe not only is this a matter of the truth and of establishing the record of what really happened, which has been the focus of a lot of erasure and distortion, but it is also restorative for African-Americans who, despite having the word Africa in this hyphenated identity label, often only have remote attachments to Africa, um, mostly through no fault of our own. The education about Africa is scant and poor. Um, and popular culture, not so much today, but for generations, work very hard to make African-Americans shun a connection with Africa. Uh, to view Africanness with shame. Uh, and I have always found that to be incredibly destructive, uh, destructive to the true historical record, but destructive to us psychologically and spiritually as a people. And so uh, because I had the privilege of having exposure to Africa and having lived in Africa from an early age, starting when I was in college, to marrying a woman from Africa, to having children who are themselves um, because of my marriage, uh, African in, in, in a direct sense, uh, this is where this duty comes from. Uh, it combines all of these ideas and became an imperative to me to tell this story and to restore Africanness to the place that it deserves in the history of the last 500 to 600 years. This might be one of the most important books of this generation because, and I didn't realize it was going to do this for me. So I, I want to publicly thank you, Born in Blackness, as I'm reading it, you know, I was telling you off mic, there are things that we inherently know, you know, uh, that we are not taught in school. It's just, I don't know if it's in our DNA. I don't know, if, you know, it just, you know, with listening growing up and hearing about Christopher Columbus, and then you see, you know, they came before Columbus. And it's like, of course, of course, Africans sailed to different places. Why are there corn maize in, on the hieroglyphs in Egypt? So you hear about Egypt and Kemet and Nubia, but then you opened up the whole continent, Ghana, like not now Ghana, Ghana before, 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 one of the most powerful nations. And then Mali. And I've always heard the name Mansa Musa, Mansa Musa, always heard it, heard it growing up, richest man in the world. But I always thought of him as an Arab. I always thought of him as, because he was Muslim. And, you know, again, in our minds, we're conditioned, you know, Arabs are Muslims, Muslims are Arabs. And they look, you know, like Arabs. They don't look like Africans. And you have centered Africans in a way that if it feels right. So I just mm -hmm. want to say thank you. Well, thank you. So to speak specifically to Mansa Musa, and you pronounced it beautifully, by the way, um, this man was as black as they come, right? Uh, we're talking about somebody from the center of the Sahel region in West Africa. And a painting um, uh, of him, a depiction of him uh, from a very famous map from the from the 
1400s um, is on the cover of my book, and it's a beautiful painting, an important historically painting. But Ghana, the, 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 pro the sort of predecessor empire of Mali, uh, existed in the late um, uh, late in the first since the late first millennium, meaning some from the year 600, 700, 800 A.D. Ghana was the source of two thousand. I'm sorry, two thirds of the known gold supply in the broad Euro-African world, uh, meaning throughout the Mediterranean, well into Europe, the the Arabic-speaking world, the Persian world, all of those places obtained two thirds of their gold supply from Ghana. And this was the motor of history throughout all of these ages, behind the rise of the Arabs, behind Muslim empires in Spain, behind Columbus's voyages, which I'd, I'd be happy to get into Columbus's voyages. So we're, the way you were, you sort of instinctively associated Mansa Musa with, because he's Muslim, with Arabness is kind of a a, ton, a sort of automatic reflex that we has been inculcated in all of us to like disassociate Africa and Africanness with important things, with with achievement, with agency, with centrality to history, with civilization, with wealth. We do this. This happens passively in the back of our minds through generation after generation of mechanisms that have been imposed on us through our education and acculturation. And so that's what the, really what this book is about. But it was discovery of a route to the gold of West Africa that the Europeans had known about for centuries that sets in motion the processes that we talk about when we speak of modernity, of the modern age. And the story that we have traditionally been told about this, of it all beginning with Christopher Columbus trying to find a route to Asia, setting off across the Atlantic Ocean, being obsessed with the wealth of Asian civilizations, is a travesty. It is not to say that Europeans were not interested in Asia, but that is not where these connections came from. These connections began a century and a half prior to Columbus with a determination by the Portuguese to connect to the gold of Mali and of Mansa Musa. And once this had succeeded, this long-term venture by Portugal, which took decades, uh, it succeeds in 1471. It sets in motion all of the many processes that we come to know as being the sort of roots of modernity, including Columbus's voyages. What do I mean by that? When the Portuguese discovered the gold in West Africa at Elmina after decades of trying, one third of their crown revenue in overnight was sourced from Ghana, from trade with West Africa. And the Spanish became covetous and envious of that and determined to match the Portuguese success. Columbus had been touring uh, European capitals one after another for a couple of decades, looking for backers for his dream of crossing the Atlantic. And he was laughed out of court each time. When the Portuguese connected with Africa and got gold in trade with Elmina, the Spanish for the first time took Columbus seriously and said, okay, the Portuguese proved that there's wealth in the tropics, namely in Africa. Maybe this means there's wealth throughout the tropics. And so you set off, we think your idea is kind of crazy. You set off across the Atlantic, see what you can do, but we need you to discover gold because Africa has proven the concept of abundance of gold in the tropics. The way Africa is talked about in the traditional narratives, if it's mentioned at all, is of simply an obstacle, something that has to be circumnavigated. It's inert. It's in historically unimportant. There's no agency there whatsoever. Africa is just this big space. 
Europeans have to get around to get to Asia. There, there's nothing that could be further from the truth. It begins with Mansa Musa and his pilgrimage in 1324 to Cairo and Mecca, which establishes the reputation of, of immense, immense African wealth in the mind of Europeans. And that is what, this is what sets everything in motion. I um, put up your book cover um, briefly because there is an image of him, black, 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 black. And again, you know, when you, you were on my radio show on Sirius XM and you said that, something in me shifted <clears throat> because, you know, you always want to know when did people decide I'm going to take these people and I'm going to put them in a hold of a ship and bring them over here and we're going to set the course of the entire world economy on their backs. And you identified that moment in time as the Mansa Moose, 1324. Him mm -hmm. taking that trip from Mali, which is near Ghana, which is near Niger, which is near Nigeria, which is near Mauritania, which is right there across the continent to Egypt for Mac, you know, for his uh Hajj, I guess. Mm -hmm. You you it it set off, you know, bells for people. Like, how is he doing this? And so so tell us about that journey. And it's interesting the backstory with uh the, the king before him and his you know, obsession with, you know, navigating the seas and how Mansa Musa came to power. How did he come to power? And what was that journey across uh, the continent of Africa? Okay, so the backstory is actually vitally important to all of this. Um, around the year 1300, Mansa Musa's predecessor, a guy named Abu Bakr II, gets this idea that if he can find a way to mount a voyage across the Atlantic and discover um, lands on the other side of that ocean, he can find an outlet for Mali's enormous supply of gold, in, in, in other words, or for trade in gold. Up until that point, indeed dating from the previous dynasty of Ghana in that same region of the Sahel, for hundreds of years, West African gold had been traded northward across the Atlantic, I'm sorry, across the Sahara and into Europe. And the, the uh, empires that existed in North Africa, or the Maghreb region as, as it is known, the Almoravid Empire uh, in specific, uh, were the middlemen. And as middlemen always do, they subtracted a hefty commission in this trade in gold. And therefore, Mali, or Ghana previously, was getting much less of the profit for having to deal through middlemen, right? Abu Bakr II has this grand geopolitical vision two centuries before Christopher Columbus. First of all, because Arabs knew already since the eight, around the year 800, at least, that the world was round, and because this is a Muslim empire in Mali, right, um, they knew that the world was round. And so let's figure out a way to cross the ocean and establish trade, find other trading partners that don't require us to go through middlemen. Abu Bakr II uh, attempts two voyages. The first of them is about two, 200 vessels. These are very large dugout canoes, so it's a fleet of dugouts. The first, uh, only one or two ships returns from the first venture. The leader of the, that mission uh, recounts a disaster at sea to Abu Bakr II, and Abu Bakr II, undaunted by this, says, we're going to put together an even bigger venture and puts together a fleet of 3,000 ships, provisions them with men, soldiers, water, food, and enormous stores of gold, and sets out at sea and never returns. We don't know what happened to him. Some people think that he may have arrived in the Americas. That's a possibility. Uh, some people say he may have died at sea. That's also a possibility. Some people, despite 
um, uh, the documentary record of this, which I'll speak to in a minute, uh, say, oh, this probably didn't happen. It's too far-fetched. Anyway, so we know this happened because in 1324, Mansa Musa sets off on pilgrimage 3,500 miles across the Sahara Desert to Cairo and then onward to Mecca with a procession like nobody's ever seen before, which carries in its baggages on camelback 18 tons in gold, pure gold. This is more gold than ever before or even since has been amassed under the control of a single person. And so Mansa Musa, with, a same, with the same kind of geopolitical impulse, he's not trying to get across the ocean now, but he's trying to figure out alternative trade connections for Mali with geopolitics and strategy involved. We're taught about Africa like it's nowhere. Like Africans are not in history. They don't have ideas. They don't have plans. They're not players. This is the exact opposite of this. Mansa Musa in 1324 is saying, Abu Bakr didn't succeed crossing the ocean, but I'm not giving up. I'm going to establish another channel for the trade in our immense wealth in gold. And that will be through the Mamluk Empire, which uh, exists, uh, whose center is in, in Cairo. And so through these enormous acts of, of, of patronage, uh, and religious devotion, Mansa Musa starts um, distributing gold as gifts and acts of generosity here and there to people high and low. And so much of this gold is given out that the price of gold plummets. Gold is almost always, historically speaking, has almost always been worth much more than silver. So much gold was given out by Mansa Musa during this trip that the price of gold dipped far below the price of sugar. I'm sorry, of silver. The price of gold was depressed for more than a decade throughout the broad Mediterranean world. And so word of Mansa Musa and of this agency of his spreads deep into Europe and young Portugal, which was then almost a brand new uh, kingdom, uh, uh, sets upon this fixate, fixated idea of connecting, finding Mansa Musa. And this creates a decades long pursuit of connection to West Africa via the sea which is the real story of the start of modernity and not the story that we are taught of it suddenly happening one, one day when Christopher Columbus persuaded the Spanish to let him um, sail three ships across the Atlantic Ocean. All of it is driven by Mansa Musa's pilgrimage to, the, uh, to, to Egypt and to, to Mecca. I think about our um, not obsession with gold, and was it, it was the gold that Mansa Musa was giving out? Because I know you you talked about it being like gold dust in bags. There were other other gold ingots, uh, which are coins. Um, how how did Africans mine gold? You know, because even today, you know, we talk about the gold rush in America and the pans, you know, and and coming up with the little, you know, bits of it and that they melted down. Like what what you know, they had to perfect it, right? Like the the earrings and the bracelets and the things that we wear today that we adorn ourselves. And I collect actually, I collect gold, I collect bullion and, and coins. And right now it's trading at eighteen dollars and ninety uh eighteen ninety-seven right now. But I bought my first cougarant, uh it was four hundred and sixty-five dollars, like. 15 years ago. I remember it because mm -hmm. gold prices. So gold has kind of stayed steady. And you're telling me the Africans cornered the market on it to the point where it was so plentiful. Talk a little bit about the mining. Sure. So so it's important to understand that Ghana, the first of the great empires of the Sahel, and then uh, um, Mali, its successor, didn't actually own the mi the main mines. They're, they owned some minor mines. But the main mines were in the northern fringes of areas contained within modern-day Guinea, 
so the country to the south of the modern country of Mali, uh, and various other places in that sort of forest band just beneath the Sahel. Ma what Mali controlled was an enormous geopolitical space crossing the savanna lands of the Sahel. Uh, and it was a highly organized em empire, an extensive empire with very large armies. And so the Malians imposed taxes on the forest people who had the gold mines. Um, and it is through those taxes and through their political domination that they were able to concentrate the supply of gold in their own hands without actually taking control of the mines. Now, to speak of the mining technology itself, there were two kinds of mining technology. One of them was alluvial mining, literally back to the early uh, ages of the first millennium, where people pan for gold, just like you hear in the stories of the American West. The second part, though, is even more interesting. Um, and that involves um, uh, deep, uh, deeply dug mines. Uh, as far it's so part of part, one of the supply sources for Mali was located, again, it's in the the northern band of forests just beneath the Sahel, as far east as, as modern-day Ghana. And in that area, going back into the 1300s or even 1200s, West Africans had technologies using digging holes deep into the earth as far as 50 feet deep with scaffolding around the side of the hole that they're digging so that the mine wouldn't collapse that allowed them to obtain gold at great depths. And Europeans we're not um, able to match this kind of technology for hundreds of years later. And so, so this was um, a, 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 the result of, of quite sophisticated technological advancement in terms of metal uh, production in, in that region. So um, again, growing up, and I, I can't thank you enough, Born in Blackness is the book. You know, it was always Egypt, 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 Cleopatra, Egypt, Cleopatra, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. Why, why the focus on Egypt and not Mali and Guinea and Ghana and Niger? Why, why the focus on Egypt, in your opinion, Howard? I, th I think that's a fascinating question. I think there's two reasons. One of them is um, Egypt, as much as it has been the focus, just as you said, it has also been the subject of distortion and of travesty. So Egypt is on the Mediterranean, uh, and Egyptians, uh, because of the geography of Egypt, uh, was a space that that other Mediterranean people and subsequently Europe in general, the West in general, could pretend was part of Europe or part of the Mediterranean. And this extends, the distortion extends into a kind of pretense that Egyptians weren't really Africans, that Egyptians, in fact, were white people, right? Um, and so that makes it easier, uh, or that made it easier to, to, to sort of celebrate Egypt as 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 the thing, so to speak, right? Um, Africa, meaning Sub-Saharan Africa in this instance, presents a totally different challenge for, 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 for Europeans and for the West in the telling of world history. And my theory is that the, the atrocity uh, that uh, was uh, visited upon Africa through enslavement and through the trade in human beings across the Atlantic Ocean and through uh, the prison industrial labor camp, that is what uh, I think uh, plantations and plantation agriculture constituted, these atrocities were so enormous that it became really, really vital just to the conscience of, of, of Europeans and of Westerners, so to speak, Westerners in general, to sustain this idea that Africa never really constituted anything worth mentioning, right? Yes, 
we can check the box and and note in passing that it is true that that the West engaged in transatlantic slavery and that this was really horrible. But but somehow it salves the conscience if you can, can pre, pre, maintain this pretense that Africa was historically inert, that it never really counted for very much in the scale of history, that it didn't have any agency, that there was no real civilization there, there was no achievement. Somehow it makes it feel better to Europeans if they can pretend that Africans were, were just didn't amount to anything. And so I think that is why, or that is one of the most important reasons why vital stories like the agency and the geopolitics of Mali from Abu Bakr II through Mansa Musa and later of other kingdoms in more recent times throughout Africa, especially one that, that figures very large in my account in Congo, uh, which had ambassadors throughout Europe uh, in the 15, 1600s and which uh, established alliances with Europeans to fight you know, against Congo, for example, forged an alliance in the 1600s with the Dutch to fight the Spanish in the South Atlantic, even across the Atlantic and Brazil. Like you have to wipe that stuff off the record in order to sustain the idea that Africans didn't amount to anything. Um, and so, so I think that's the kind of proximate reason for your, 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 what you have correctly observed. And we have to sit in the willful erasure of blackness the willful erasure of blackness. Oh, all right. Um, we have Nubians here. We're in Nubia, by the way. Uh, mm -hmm. And hello to all of the Nubians who are joining us. There are more than 300 folk right now in the chat. Uh, let me welcome uh, one of our brothers in, Tyrell. He has a question for you, Howard. Hi, Tyrell. Hi. Good evening, afternoon, morning, wherever you are. Hi, brother. I had a uh, question. I, I haven't read the book yet, but I did see the interview, a clip of the interview that you did with Karen on um, YouTube. And I wanted to kind of suss out something you mentioned towards the end of that clip. Um, Karen was asking, like, how how did this happen? How did um, how were the Europeans, if you will, able to come to such a large space and uh, basically, you know, take over and or run and create, you know, this slave uh, culture, this slave, um, you know, uh, workforce, even though there was so much, you know, power, gold and influence. And you spoke something about um, their, you know, each tribe kind of being individuals, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's something we can learn a lot about uh, reinforcing the power of community and communicating. And just want to know if you can speak a little bit more on, on that, on, on how something like this was actually possible. Sure. It's a beautiful question, Tyrell. Um, and you drew the right lesson from it. Um, mm. The first thing I want to say is that for uh, it took centuries uh, after the arrival of the Portuguese in modern-day Ghana at Elmina in 1471. It took centuries after the deep establishment of European exchanges, commerce, trade, uh, and, and ultimately political domination in Africa before Africans arrived at a synthetic kind of universal sense of themselves as Africans. You have to, this is a surprising idea for us today, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to imagine if you come from a world where everyone in living memory and for hundreds of years prior to that is simply an African, meaning looks like an African, 
Mm. Uh, what, what we identify as African, African ceases to be a thing for you. It's not a feature of description, right? It's a, it's, mm. it's a given, it's a taken, right? So, right. so, so it was only through the extension of European contact and of ultimately exploitation that Africans began to understand themselves specifically as African and to understand mm. the processes in a full way of what was going on. And here's the, another mm. feature of that. Uh, the Europeans were extracting Africans from Africa for the purposes of shipping them overseas to work in prison industrial labor camps, right? What we prettify by calling plantations uh, through enslavement. Africans had enslavement too, but they never had any kind of experience with enslavement like this. African enslavement went something like the following, typically, right? One group conquers another group, and as they emerge victorious, they absorb the captives into their own culture. And there may be a brief period of time where those captives, especially the males, are put to work in menial labor, but there is no long-term taint of caste or or, or race certainly uh, that attaches to these people, and in fact, the 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 priority is assimilation because African kingdoms in this period, African societies in period in this period, uh, in general, measured wealth in people. The more people you have, the wealthier you're considered to be, and so these polities wanted to absorb people that they captured through warfare. Warfares existed in humanity everywhere all the time, right? So that's not unusual. You have one group fight another group, one group wins. They want to absorb the other people. So when the Europeans showed up wanting to buy people, the Africans don't think that's necessarily strange on the face of it, right? They want people too, right? So they're willing to sell the people on the basis of the availability of rare trade goods or luxury items or sometimes firearms or things like that that can strengthen them. But they don't understand for some time that what's actually happening is an enslavement on a totally different basis from anything that the Africans had experienced themselves. And that is because they don't understand it because the enslavement's taking place across the ocean. No Africans or precious few are traveling across the ocean and coming back to report onto the continent what, what this constitutes. And the prison industrial labor uh, uh, system involving chattel, which means transgenerational racial slavery that is organized in an industrial way and is militarized and involves corporal punishment and caste and non-assimilation of people explicitly into the dominant society is something that the Africans had not, not only no concept of, couldn't imagine. And so it takes quite some time for uh, a synthetic sense, as I'm calling it, of Africanness to emerge and for a resistance to develop fully on that basis, because simply the Africans, in fact, humanity had never encountered this kind of phenomenon before. This was a unique moment in history. This had not existed in any other part of the world, right? Uh, and so this was a moment of uh, initiation into a new concept through brutal processes, but ones that were remote from one's eyes on the continent and which therefore took a long time to come to terms with. Mm. Thank you, Thank Tom. You so go back to work. <laughs> go back to work. Get your job together. I appreciate you so much. Karen, Karen can, yes. I, can I say one more thing about Tyrell's question? 
Absolutely. So you, you, I said you spoke well to the lesson, and this is really a beautiful thing that you said, right? The lesson in this for us is that to the extent that we allow ourselves to be siloed, what do I mean right. ourselves? I mean people of African ancestry. I mean people of African ancestry who look one way or look another way, right? right? right. To refer to Karen's first question to me, mm -hmm. right? To the extent we allow ourselves to be siloed, we weaken ourselves. We right. make ourselves vulnerable to these processes. I don't expect those old processes to return in the same form, but new ones arise all the time. And mm -hmm. to the extent that we don't understand our commonality in this history, our own right. strength in this history, what we share together in this history across the petty chauvinistic things that divide us of language or nation or region, or uh, you know, subculture, to the extent that we can't overcome those things, we are aiding in our own victimization. We are weakening ourselves. And so this is really the beautiful thing that I found in your question. I was so happy. Yes, because I see that even still happening today with, we see prisoners or people that break the law as someone different from us, someone outside of us. Um, and so if, if a pregnant woman goes to jail, and can't actually have her birth at a hospital where she's being cared for um, because she somehow broke the law and is being treated poorly, we can detach from her humanness because she's all of a sudden arrested. She's all of a sudden imprisoned. She's in a, a new form of the same enslavement, if you will, or modification of this enslavement. And so, yeah, I, I think I think this that lesson needs to be, you know, screamed on just not just a, an African perspective, which I mm -hmm. think is important, but on, from a human level. If we if That's we right. if we don't if we give up on humanity and, and and take a break on the importance of maintaining humanity, mm -hmm. man, something like this can be morphed into something that we actually can accept, like imprisonment. Like, oh man, he yeah he brought, he did the crime. He should. Do the time or she. That's right. New forms of terror. We open ourselves yeah. up to it. Mm. Yes. Thank you Tara, so much. I so appreciate you. that. Tara, I love you. All right. Well, um, and to his point, you said Africans had never seen anything like that because it wasn't human. It wasn't humanity that the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, the British, and everyone got together to do this. It was the opposite of humanity. But I feel like now's the time that we need to make what they did pay. Like we need to make them pay by coming together. I always say, stop putting the bullets in the guns that are pointed at us. Let's stop doing that because we do it all the time. But in coming together, the very thing that they threw us in them holds of the ships, you know, together with different languages and cultures and backgrounds and made us one. We need to come together and be one. And that's going to be the undoing of all of this racism and everything that they created. I'm baffled that that racism stuck so hard that they were able to get the French, the Dutch, and all of them to see one another as one. Like, how difficult was it? It doesn't seem to be difficult because they're still living on it to this day. Well, it was, uh, first of all, yes, we need to come together in exactly the terms you described and make them pay in exactly the way you described. But, but they were able to come together so quickly on this basis uh, because there was so much profit involved in it. There was so much upward mobility involved in it. And we can understand this in the narrow confines of American history, where Southern white people in plantation uh, societies of the American South very often bought into uh, notions of 
uh, race and of racial domination of people of African extent because they felt that it elevated them somehow psychologically, even if they were not going to be materially much better off, even if they were never going to own slaves themselves. It was, it, it, it opened the door to a facility for them of believing in their own superiority, right? And so, so, so this operates on an economic level and it operates on a social level and it operates also finally on a psychological level. Okay. Um, we have a question. Some people are shy or at work because, you know, it's the middle of the day. Carl mm -hmm. wants to know, could you ask Mr. French if he has any recommendations on a world history chart that I can purchase to assist my homeschooling of my seven-year-old son? My lunch break is over, but my aim is to teach my son Coltrane what we accomplished before the interruption, before I teach him what we accomplished in spite of the interruption. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, thank you for the question. It's a, it's a difficult question because uh, precisely our um, mainstream, if you will, education has been so lacking in, in terms of the resources that it generates for the purposes of uh, a truly accurate uh, and reflective uh, uh, a history that's reflective of the reality of the past, right? And so I'm hard pressed to point to um, easily, readily available, certainly in any commercial space, resources that place Africans and, and Africa at the center of the history in the way that I argue they deserve to be placed, right? And that's, that's, that's an important reason why I wrote the book. Um, and the book ends up precisely, you know, a lot of the spirit of the book is written against um, chauvinism and provincialism, meaning, you know, uh, against thinking about black blackness in a national context, whether you're an American or a Ghanaian or a Jamaican, right? Thinking I'm, the the thrust of the book is 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 mostly aimed at breaking down those walls, right? But at the very end of the book, in the last sections of the book, I turn to American history explicitly and 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 tell the story about how Africa and Africans actually made this country. Um, and so uh, I, I feel a little bit shy saying buy my book, right? But I think my book- Buy his book, buy his book, buy his book, Born yeah. in Blackness, buy it. I think you're, I don't think it, I don't think it's out of the league of a, of a, a school age child. It's certainly not gonna be read in one go, but it's written with a view, not only to being deeply uh, annotated and carefully sourced, but also readable. Uh, by by people of every level of reading. Mm. All right, uh, let's bring in uh, Kelly, Kelly Bree. Hey, welcome. Hello, hello. Hi, Professor Hunter. Hello, Hi. Professor French. Hey, Kelly. Um, this has blown my mind ever since your first interview with Karen last week. So with that said, um, my question is, we we get a lot of this information and are learning a lot more of this history now from scholars like yourself that are writing about what Africa has done and kind of giving us more history past the interruption. Is, are there, do you, I'm assuming you have counterparts in Africa and I mean, it's a whole continent, but in the different countries in Africa that are doing the same work and reminding them of what they've also done or is that not happening? And how can we start to kind of bridge that gap between both of us to remember that all we need to do is form like Voltron? So thank you, uh, Kelly. There have been scholars doing a lot of this vital work in Africa for a very long time. And one of the best known of them 
is a late scholar from Senegal named Sheikh Anta Diop, uh, who, um, you know, wrote uh, a number of very influential books decades ago about the role of Africa in the emergence of the West and of global civilization and centering Africa and the story of humanity. But the problem, there are a few problems involved. One of them is that Africa is, uh, by virtue of colonialism, is balkanized. And so Africa doesn't have one book market. Uh, books don't circulate easily within Africa. Um, a public publishers, the publishing business, globally speaking, is such that book markets are divided by national borders themselves. And so this constitutes a really big barrier everywhere. A book published in the United States, for example, is not necessarily automatically available even in England, right? Uh, but in Africa, you've got 54 countries. Uh, and uh, they, they, the, the national languages or uh, the legal languages, um, the, the sort of legacies of colonialism, are, 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 are many. English, French, Portuguese, um, Spanish, even in Namibia, uh, German, uh, and others, right? And so it's hard to, uh, th these are structural barriers that are hard to, to, to surmount. Um, I, I have great hopes that my book's going to be um, published in some African markets eventually. Um, uh, a lot of people don't like Amazon, um, and, and, I, and I completely get that, uh, but um, you know, uh, uh, electronic versions of books help overcome this, this, these barriers to some extent. Audio versions of books, and there's an audio version of my book coming out in not too distant future, help overcome this. And then just acts of citizenship help overcome this, where people pass books along among themselves, and books sort of maintain a very vigorous afterlife. Um, this, my own particular book, I was blessed early after its publication, a Nigerian sister read the book early on and was so moved by it that she bought this one individual bought 1200 copies of my book to distribute to friends in nigeria and so 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 this is this is part of a this is, speaks to a kind of citizenry of learning and of and of reading and and it's not a perfect answer but it it, it involves a kind of agency that we all have to be in uh, mm. part of Oh, and we have a directory of black bookstores. I think it has more than 250 black bookstores on mm -hmm. uh, in narrative. Uh, so uh, we're going to uh, encourage the Nubians to go there and get your book from there. But I have no. it in my Kindle. I have a hard no. copy of it uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, the Kindle's convenient. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can't wait to get the audio version. But I like the idea of sharing because that's what we do here. This is the community where we do share. Buying 1,200 copies and giving them out is amazing. Um, and Kelly Bree is one of our most active members. And thank you for popping in and asking. Did you get your answer? Did you get your answer? I did, but I have one more follow-up. Is is this going to kind of be, since we're being enlightened or awakened to our past, do you think that um, the domino effect is going to come from America to kind of bring us all back together? Or are we kind of thinking a little or maybe me, thinking too highly of ourselves and where we sit in the world to try to get us back together. I, I like the question. I'm not, I have to caution you. I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, so I can't really predict the future very well. But I, I want to sort of join that question with your previous question to say that even though my book hasn't been, literally been published in Africa, and I'm not speaking of this extraordinary gesture of 1,200, uh, a purchase of 1,200 books, 
my book's initial reception was greatest among African readers, African readers in the diaspora here in the United States. I mean, the early conversations on Twitter and on other social media about this book were dominated by Africans. Africans were just kind of blown away, not just by the details of my book, but that a book like this could be published in the United States by a mainstream media uh, or mainstream publisher and get uh, you know, such a prominent kind of place uh, out there in the in the mindshare of, of the public. My bigger concern initially, and I feel better about this now, was about African-Americans. I mean, I wrote this book, in fact, in really sincerely for everyone. White people need to read this book too. You know, they are the inheritors of this legacy too, even though they were on the other side of most of the processes being told about, right? But they need to understand that their prosperity and 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 security and everything else is premised on the sacrifice of Africa and of Africans and need to come to new understandings of this. But my my earliest concern was actually with African American audiences. And I'm going to advance a thought that may be provocative and is really speculative on my part. I'm not sure, I don't have evidence of this, but I had a feeling early in the launch of the book that African-Americans may be timid about the word Africa. It sounds like, sounds, you know, like a contradiction in terms. Africa is in the word African-Americans. But African-Americans have been socialized for generations not to think about Africa as being of immediate concern to them, of being kind of remote from them. And if you go back far enough, African-Americans in my, you know, grandmother's generation especially, you know, I grew up hearing stories like this, you know, sort of ran away. Not you can't say everybody at at the same time ever did one thing, right? But very often ran away from. We wish to disassociate ourselves with connections with Africa, and so I have a book called in the subtitle "Africa and Africans," and it was my vague feeling that somehow African Americans might have concluded simply from the title that this isn't really about their story, that, you know, this is kind of, if there's any truth to, to that feeling, that African-Americans have, like Americans in general, us, uh, we suffer from a kind of provincialism where we want stories to be told to us that are American stories and that we are most prone to pay attention to things that are American and not to look very broadly beyond our borders. I'm heartened, you know, Karen has been a big part of this. This, 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 this platform is fantastic and the discussions are amazing. Um, but even beyond this specific uh, discussion, I've been heartened in the last few weeks with much more broader, deeper links with African-American audiences. And, and it's my fervent hope, not because I want to sell books, but because I think this is vital. This is important that African-Americans embrace this knowledge and that they fertilize their conversations. And it helps us break down the barriers that separate us provincially from other parts of the diaspora. This is the key to our freedom, you know, and as you're speaking about that, you married an African woman, but there's been a lot of, you know, as I'm looking at this continent being divvied up at the you know, Berlin conference and then these people being indoctrinated, I'm not so sure that the colonization wasn't somehow more damaging than our enslavement, because at least in our enslavement, we had to figure out and evolve into something. Whereas I feel like people on the continent, you know, when I went to Africa, I saw little girls in, you know, the hair, hair was shaved. Uh, the schoolgirls with their uniforms on, and they had a white Jesus. Like there was a white Jesus just about every and Santa Claus, white Santa mm -hmm. Claus, and white because I went during Christmas time. White Jesus and white Santa Claus in Africa. Yep. It bothered me to my core. But the 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 Christianity that is the white Christianity that is so prevalent 
on the continent tells me that, you know, there's a story being told there too. So I wanted to know, you know, as I'm reading your book, what was told about the people that were being snatched and kidnapped because they willfully were, were selling them, you know, in the different, because they thought about slavery differently. They didn't know the, the carnage that they were sending those folk into. What, what is the, you know, talk a little bit about the, you know, what the left behind Africans were told about what was happening to the people that were being put into bondage in, in the quote unquote new world. And what did they understand about the system of slavery? What are they taught? Are they taught this in schools today? Sure. Um, Karen, first uh, on colonization, right? Colonization is a psychological, psychologically violent process and it has a long tail. It's, it has uh, um, after effects that last across generations. And I can give you a very simple example of this that I think any American listener can understand. If, if you have an English actor in a TV show or a movie, a very common American response to that English actor is to attribute a higher intelligence to that person simply based on their accent. Uh, and this is an effect of colonization. This is, Americans are psyched out by the fact that to, more than 200 years ago, this country was a colony of Britain. And so if you think of Africa, which just decolonized 70 years ago, uh, more or less, right? The, the roots of colonization, psychologically speaking, are much more persistent. And so there's white Christmas and, you know, um, Jesus and, and all that are, are just the tip of the iceberg. This stuff is everywhere. And so the question of how do Africans process the story of, uh, of, of enslavement uh, is a very live question in Africa. The, the, you know, the, the educational establishments of most African countries were in fact created uh, during co colonization and still bear the imprint of colonization. And the Europeans certainly didn't have any um, interest in emphasizing uh, a, a realistic picture of enslavement. Um, and so that has a legacy that is still being worked through slowly. And Africa is just emerging from this, really, in terms of the way it teaches this history. And unfortunately, one piece of the history or one piece of the education about this history is, I understand this at, at one level, but but you, I have very often traveling widely in Africa heard when I try to raise the topic of enslavement with Africans saying two things. One of them, very similar to American, meaning us, balkanization and isolation, saying that really doesn't concern us. That's an American problem. Like we're here, that involves Americans. Americans are not, you know, we're different from Americans. That's your problem, right? That That's one thing. The other thing I often hear is, Oh, that's just too painful. It's just too sad to think about that. So I don't want to devote a lot of time to thinking about that. If Africans are given, if when African curriculums become fully renovated, or I should even say revolutionized, and African agency is put back at the center of this story, and the truth of these processes becomes integrated into the curricula, the pain part won't go away, but it'll be contextualized. And Africans will be able to be made whole psychologically by understanding the real foundations in modernity that they played and not just be as victims who were carted off as miserable people who were put in chains and, and put to work in plantations in the new world. Mm. Thank you for that uh, answer. Kelly Bree, thank you for your question. Let's bring in our brother from across the pond, Mr. Oz. How you doing? Unmute. <laughs> okay. Hi, Karen. Good Hi. afternoon. Um, it's uh, dark here. I'm in London. Hello, Professor Howard. I'm in the UK. Um, 
I'm an Igbo from uh, Nigeria. My family mm-hmm. is from Nigeria. I was born here in the UK. Um, I got your book. Uh, I saw the interview um, that you had with Karen, Professor Hunter. Um, and I've, I've been doing this kind of research that all of us need to do. Uh, and I try to encourage my brothers and sisters wherever we are. Uh, we More now than ever, we need to be our own uh, uh, historians and our own journalists because uh, there's literally an assault on everybody black wherever mm-hmm. we happen to be. Um, I've lived here in the UK my whole life and, and I can see <laughs> the institutions that are deliberately designed to set against us. So my first question will be, how, how do you see this thing playing out given what's happening in the United States vis-a-vis you know, CRT and banning of history? Because I know on the continent, many of them are not even aware what happened to themselves historically. I mean, mm-hmm. I think brothers and sisters in Congo don't even realize who King Leopold was uh, in Nigeria. Maybe, maybe some people don't even know who Frederick Lugard was and mm-hmm. what he did. So how do we do enough? I mean, I, I'm glad to hear you say that uh, somebody bought a thousand copies of your book and then distributed it, but there were just so many people in the continent. How sure. do we even begin to break, not even just bring ourselves together, but the onslaught that is going to come from us trying to do that and you know literally stand ourselves up? Because even here in the UK, the UK government, they're trying to talk about bringing CRT into the UK and, 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 and they're going to do the same thing that is happening in the United States of America. Right. So when I'm looking at all of these things, I'm looking in Nigeria, I'm, I'm, I'm in conversation with my brothers and sisters here in, in the United States, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm here in the UK and I'm like, I can see that they won't want us to be able to be ourselves. And that's all we want. We just want to be ourselves. So how do you see this thing playing out? And, and I'll juxtapose that with, this, this, this book is fantastic because of what's just happened in Mali, with them kicking the French out, the ambassador out, reintroducing their own national language and getting rid of French. That is just, your book is timely, really timely. And what they've done there is, is so poignant to, to really galvanize the continent. And I think if, if other countries could do what they've done, that will be a start. But I know there's going to be a lot of interference. And I just want to know, how do you think that's going to play out? And what, what can we do ourselves as, 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 as decent human beings to help that process of enabling African people to, to you know, reclaim our territory, reclaim our land, just reclaim our identity uh, as, as full you know, serving members of, of, of the world? Uh, uh, that would be my first question. Thank you, Oz. Um, so um, I view CRT in the United States as a rearguard action. Um, I think that CRT represents desperation on the part of certain elements of American society that fight against CRT or what they imagine to be CRT as to be a rearguard action by desperate sections of American population. And I am actually optimistic about this. I think that um, uh, that uh, this is destined to fail. Uh, I believe there's this there's this very common, almost want to say cliche saying that I don't usually I don't have not found occasion very often to use or embrace, which says the arc of history bends toward progress. Right? Um, I believe, in fact, that the arc of this conversation will bend toward progress, and I believe it for a variety of reasons. But I'm going to focus on one of them. And the, the piece that I think is most important has to do with demographics and distribution and circulation of people of African descent in the broad Atlantic world. Right now, 10% of Americans who identify as black 
were born in Africa. 30 years ago, that number was 3%. This figure is growing very fast. Africans and African-Americans, despite every kind of barrier thrown into the, the way uh, between them to, uh, to prevent them from understanding themselves as being in essence, uh, peoples who have more in common than have things dividing them. Africans are coming together and movement and circulations of people is a big piece of that. And with the circulations of people come the circulations of ideas. And so I see this happening also in Europe. The Europeans, a lot of what's happening in Europe in terms of reaction toward uh, under toward uh, what you said, CRT education or uh, in, 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 in continental Europe like France against um, the, even the notion of identifying people through the census or other kinds of information tracking as black. These are rear guard actions that are bound to fail. Uh, Europe sits on the doorstep of Africa. Europe colonized Africa. And as a result of geographic proximity, but also of those political processes and colonization, will never be able to separate itself from Africa. In fact, Africa today is just short of 1.5 billion people. By 2050, Africa is going to be perhaps 2.5 billion people. By, by the end of the century, Africa is going to be between 3 and 5 billion people. If you don't believe those numbers, look at the United Nations Population Division studies on this. They're very revealing, right? Africa is going to be the source. It is already becoming the source of the most dynamic demography in the world, meaning the greatest increment in additional human population, but also the greatest source of people of working age. Europe is going to reach a point where they're going to have to flip the switch from trying to keep Africans out and keep them cornered and or, or, or confined to little boxes to saying, actually, we Africa is vital to our survival, that we need to uh, um, make place for Africans in a way that has never happened before in our societies. And so as you see the movements of people, the circulation of people and ideas like this, the breakout of Africans from one place to another, people of African descent out of their little silos and the identity boxes that we have been so painfully limited to, you're going to um, you're you're going to see an incredible strengthening of African identity in the Atlantic world, and we in these four corners of the world of the Atlantic, meaning Africa, Europe, uh, South America, and North America, are going to be able to take strength from this. This is going to be a resource that we can draw on in common. And I'm not saying this naively. I don't think that this is going to happen automatically. The, the demographics and the circulation help us. But this is something we're going to have to we're going to have to fight for. We're going to have to work for these conversations like we're having right now are part of it. We're going to have to militate for right. But we have the dynamic demography and circulation in our favor, and we need to leverage that for these purposes. Mm, great. Thank you, great. Howard. Thank you. What, what, what can we do to help pro, uh, spread your book more widely? What can we do to, to help more, more people get get hold of your work? Um, I, I, so a few things. If you go to a bookstore and 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 first of all, buying it is obviously great. I feel sheepish in saying that. I, I don't want to be sound like a I'm I'm a I'm a flogging book merchant or something like that. Um, but buying it is the first thing. Second thing is, uh, if you enter a bookstop and shop and they don't have it, insisting that they stock it. The third thing is giving it to other people. The fourth thing is if you buy things online. I am a big supporter, like Karen said, of independent bookstores. They are so vital to all of this, but not everybody's going to buy the book that way. If you buy a book online and, and it has impressed you, 
speak about the book online, add a comment. It makes a difference. Readers yeah. or book buyers see these things and it influences them and helps them understand the importance of the work. And so help spread the word in whatever way you can. Let's put our thumb on the algorithms. You know how we do that, right? Um, and also, as, as you're talking, what, what Oz is saying, you know, the demographics of Africa, Japan is struggling economically because they don't have enough people. They're not reproducing. The same mm -hmm. thing is happening in America. We saw the census. What's happening in America with the white population? And this is part of the fear, right? The mm -hmm. difference is now they can no longer extract our black bodies to build their economy. They're going to have to come with the, with the Skrilla. More importantly, we now are in a position to make demands, but we have to come together. Only 10% of Africans identify as being black. That needs to be 99.9%. Stop that. All right. No, uh, no, 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 no. That's, that's wrong. 10% of black people in America were born in Africa. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. I was, yeah, no, 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 no. That would be tragic. What you just oh, said. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I need to listen better. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you have time for a few more, please? Yes, let's okay. go. All right. Uh, thank you again, Oz. Let's bring in uh, Yukin. Is that your uh, Nubian name? Yukin? No, that's my real name, Yukin. Okay. All right. What is your Nubian handle? Uh, Uptown Roamer. You, 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 you were right, Karen. Just switch it back to the real name. But um, thank you, Professor French. I uh, got the book. I'm actually one of those 10% of those Africans from Kenya. Mm -hmm. Um and so my question really pertains to off of piggybacking off of what Oz says, um, even this flood of information to reestablish identity. Um, I, like my grandmother and my grandfather uh, went through that process of colonialization in Kenya, uh, right outside of Nairobi, uh, Bahamut. And so even here speaking English with you is already, you know, um, confirmation of that colonialization. Yeah. So now, as far as to Oz's point, as we remember um, and go through this process of remembering maybe globally who we are as Africans, how do we um, uh, almost re realign ourselves in a way where we can't be interrupted, uh, I guess, because to the clip that you had with Karen, um, the political instability of choosing one tribe, uplifting them, causing political conflict, and then extracting the resources, almost mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. And that as in going through history and realizing that Africans almost have to be put out of their mind. You can't rob somebody who's aware of what's going on, right? So... In Kenya, we still have tea plantations to James Finley, you know, and even tying that to uh, the Boston Tea Party, that tea, where did they come from? Um, how do we stitch this in a way where we are aware of history, but then we move, we can move forward to almost fortify ourselves and taking into, and taking into account the lessons from history, I guess, because the same history is only being we are only becoming aware of it, but I think the structure in and of itself is already aware of what has happened or uh, um, the ongoing, you know, um, supplanting of, of, of Africans and their ideas to get, come to, to be self-determined, whether mm -hmm. in Haiti or Kenya or Flint, Michigan or, you know, wherever else. Mm -hmm. 
the, uh, so I want to answer this, this question in two stages. The first stage involves an American listenership or audience, right? We need to insist in this country that the study of Africa become a normal part of any education. And that just simply isn't the case. You can graduate from high school and college in this country and be considered well-educated, not knowing boo about Africa. And that needs to be fixed quickly. We need to insist not only that African-Americans be able to learn about Africa and that Africa be placed in the center of the story where it needs to be, where it deserves to be, but that everybody has, in order to be considered educated, like something like the SAT or, uh, you know, college entrance exams or history requirements, things like this, Africa needs to be brought in from the margin and put right there, right? So that's the first piece. Second piece is about outside of the United States. So, you know, we this struggle that we're talking about faces some structural problems. And one of the, the, the biggest, most uh, difficult to surmount structural problems is balkanization. You know, Africa's 54 countries. Right. I don't know how many West Indian countries there are, but it's a bunch, right? Um, uh, and there are other African communities in, in various other places, the biggest of them actually in Brazil, outside of Africa, right? Um, so this presents a structural challenge in terms of in terms of creating much deeper and stronger linkages between us. Um, and I don't have an easy answer for you. If there was an easy solution, I think somebody else would have already implemented it by now. But the circulation of peoples and ideas is happening at a rate that's faster and, and richer right now than it's ever happened before in history. And we need to create intellectual circuits and discussion networks that transcend all of the national boundaries that exist in order to favor this kind of um, uh, um, symbiosis uh, or um, a, a syncretic sense of identity and of history and of common purpose across these boundaries that will strengthen all of us. And this is this is hard work, and we're going to stumble forward as we do this. It's not going to be one straight path, right? But people who ask questions like yours are part of the answer. Uh, we all have to work at this uh, and make it part of your everyday life. Find a way to have a conversation every day with somebody who that helps overcome some of these barriers. Sometimes it might mean somebody who is of direct African ancestry like yourself talking to an African-American brother or sister in ways that help that person understand parts of the world that they're not familiar with. And sometimes it may happen in the other direction, right? But 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 this is the spirit we need to proceed from. Right, right, right. I guess, it, 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 I guess it's like, to know that Kenya was constructed or Nigeria was constructed, you know, and it's like, I, am I trying to, or are we trying to use their structures to reinvent us? Like to be Nigerian and to say, you know, I'm going to, we're going to restructure this that was given to us by the British for the purposes of just extracting labor, right? right. Shell and Chevron is in Nigeria, James right. Finley, whatever the resource is in Africa, it's like, can I? Can we do it being a Kenyan, or do we just primarily, really, just have to see ourselves um, primarily first as just African, and then you know the? Uh, I, I guess in my mind, conceptually, that's that's how I would see it. You know, almost mm -hmm. like African American would be a subtribe under African, yeah. like Haitian or Jamaican or any of those. You know. Well, that's what I see as the ideal, right? But let me speak to Africa specifically for a moment, right? Um, 
So in creating the structures of colonial rule and of small, for the most part, small nation states, this balkanization of Africa into 54 countries, many of them landlocked, right? A persistent or maybe even permanent de debility was imposed on Africa, right? And Africa has not emerged from that. The only way Africa is going to really go forward and to take its place in the world that it needs to and deserves to is in overcoming this balkanization. And this, uh, you know, this, I don't have a, a set recipe for you. In some cases, I imagine this is going to require the dissolution of African states and the formation of new ones that were not, that are not conceived on the colonial bases or the creation of much stronger regional federations or of uh, much more vigorous economic zones across broad regions of the continent. At the, all of the problems we're talking about, whether it involves the reinsertion of America, meaning African-Americans in the broader black world, or of the problems of Africa itself, all involve breaking down barriers and of bringing people together and of drawing upon strength in numbers and in, of common history and of common purpose. And so this is, this is going to involve a lot of creativity and a lot of struggle for all of us. And I don't want to, I'm not going to speak above my pay grade and pretend that I have the answer for Kenyans or Nigerians or even for, for, for African-Americans. But these are the ideas that we're going to have to problem solve around. Absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you, Yukin. I appreciate you. Uh, and on his point, Nigeria literally was the land of the blacks. It was a, a you know, derogatory name that the Brits gave to Nigeria. I was like, the first thing you should have done when you got your independence is change your name. But that's all part of what he's saying. I think it's so powerful. I mean, black people have been literally given, you know, uh, a de designation in America. And it's time for us to reclaim who we were in the beginning, which is what I love about your book. You frame it uh, so that we're at the center of the conversation about what we need to do next. I think you've given us the blueprint, Howard, and I appreciate that. Uh, is Nitra ready to come in? We got a couple more questions, and then that's it, because uh, he has to go. We have to go. Nitra, Hi. welcome. Hi. Hi, uh, Karen. Hi, um, uh, Professor French. Thank you. Um, really quick, um, my question is about, because I teach um, U.S. history to middle school uh, kids, mm -hmm. and I wanted to know how did it, so we had you have Mansa, who um, who had gold and he spread it. You know he went on his voyage and spread it throughout to different people. But um, I'm sorry, <laughs> but um, he so from the Americas, I guess the American or the European explorations. We have to teach them that they were. Um, it was three G's, God, gold, and glory, okay? And I wanted to know if, because they, of course, stole everything, so they kind of took that idea of exploration and, you know, tried to, you know, take it and use it as their own. So did the Europeans add God to the gold that Mansa had to basically bring more followers toward them? Because now it seems as if, um, I mean, they use religion to just pull everyone to everything and to kind of keep hold of them. I mean, it was, you know, one of the reasons from slavery, um, but also just not, you know, beyond slavery. Like now they use religion to control everything. So 
I was wondering, like, at what point did um, did the, did they bring that religion part in? Because Mansa wasn't um, trying to spread religion. He is. I mean, it seems as if he was trying to spread, you know, riches. So um, that was my question about how they, you know, took that idea of you know wanting to trade and uh, you know um, build. And um, how bring they, the baby. Who's the what's the, what's the baby's name? It's all we're not going to the baby. Hello, baby. Hello, who are you? Say hi. Hi, hi, sweetie. What's his name? Case. Kate. Case. Case. Yeah. Case. Hi, Case. And it's good that the baby's in here learning about Mansa. So we're good with it. All right. So yeah. how are French? Let me let me let me try that. Nitra, thank you. Um. Uh, so this the, the, my, this story begins. This story about the birth of modernity that's at the center of my book begins, as I said at, at the start of this conversation, with the Portuguese quest to discover gold in West Africa, right? Because Portugal was desperate to find a way to survive. It was weak, it was new, and it was poor. And Spain wanted to take it over, wanted to reabsorb it. And so the Span the Portuguese get this long odds idea if we can only find the source of gold in africa we can we can we'll succeed we'll be able to persist persist and and fight off the spanish and become a, a rich member of this emerging uh, european uh, geopolitical space right all of the european countries in this age and we're talking about the 15th century so the 1400s were competing this is prior to the reformation they're competing for the approval and the legitimacy of the vatican of Rome, of the Catholic Church, right? And the Catholic Church was obsessed with a competition, uh, a violent contest between Catholicism uh, or, or Christianity and Islam, right? And so the Portuguese said, if you give us sanction for the slave trade, we will bring these black people into Christianity. This is how it all begins. This is the religious root of this thing. This was incredibly cynical on the part of the Portuguese. They didn't plan to invest any real effort in Christianizing Africans. They simply wanted a sanction from the Portuguese, I'm sorry, from the Vatican for the slave trade so that the Vatican didn't tell Spain that it was okay for Spain to go into Africa and to conduct or to manage the slave trade. And so it was on this basis that Portugal is given in the early I'm sorry, in the late 15th century and in the early 16th century, a monopoly, literally a monopoly on the sub-Saharan African slave trade. The Vatican said only the Portuguese can do this. And on that basis, the Portuguese would, on the very planks of the ships that the enslaved people would be walked up for embarkation on to the, on to, onward to the New World, the Portuguese would say a very quick prayer and make the sign of the cross and declare the enslaved person Christian. Of course, the enslaved person had no idea what was being said, had no instruction in the religion or anything else. But that was good enough for the processes of the moment in terms of justification and legitimacy in terms in this internal competition within Europe. And that sealed the deal for the Portuguese. This is how Portugal rose, got onto its feet, became rich and successful, and launched all of these processes which have delivered us into this conversation today. Thank you, Nitra. Uh, and baby Case, let, let me bring him back in. Hold on. Bye, baby Case. Have a wonderful little Bye. So cute. Thank you, Nitra. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Nitra. You know, when I went to Elmina Castle, you know, they take you on the, the journey. And I actually went with this young lady. She joined us uh, in Ghana. And 
on the trip, you know, they tell you how they prayed underneath the dungeons, over the dungeons, they were praying every day. Mm-hmm. And I and I was going through this being very angry. What God were they praying to while they were raping and doing horrific things to those 300 women packed into that space below where the priests would pray every day? I always think about that. All right, let me welcome Michelle in. Michelle Yaboa, hi. Hello, good afternoon, good morning, Professor French. I wake up and I go to bed with your book. We, My daughter and I are on page 130. She That's is wonderful. a seven-year-old and we are truly enjoying your book. But more importantly, I know you only have a few minutes. One question that she actually asked Dr. Carr, um, and I'm going to ask it on her behalf, is there's mm-hmm. a letter I read to her that stuck out and it mentions um, their uh, godless no civilization, no means of collective defense in terms of people's, uh, the, the perception of Africans. And she wanted to know, how could another human think that of another human? That plain question. So would you happen to have an answer for her? I can try an answer. First of all, thank you. Secondly, looking at your name, do you have family in Ivory Coast? No, in Ghana. In Ghana, in Ghana. okay. Yebwa is an Akan name. And, yes, and so- yes. The Paola people. She was my tour guide. She, yeah. she and her husband were my okay. tour guide because they're both okay. from Ghana. Yes. Okay, at the same. Yeah, yeah. my proper name is Ajwa. Ajwa. Yes. Okay, so that means you were um, uh, born on what day of the week? Monday. Monday, right. Yes. Okay, great. So to your question. Um, uh, the horror that attaches to all of the things we're talking about mm-hmm. impelled the Europeans to come up with stories that could clear their consciences or that could help clear their consciences. Nothing's going to wipe this out, right? And this is why we're involved in this furious um, rearguard struggle against an imagined CRT today, right? Because it's still the wages of guilt and sin that are working through the minds of these people. And they want to deny it and they want to come up with other explanations. Um, and Uh, figure out alternative theories of things and cast blame elsewhere, right? And so so there's nothing unique to this particular chapter that your daughter has so smartly asked about, right? It's if you can pretend that these the people that you are taking uh, and subjecting to such inhumane conditions and to exploitation of such a rank and violent nature, if you can pretend that they are uncivilized or that they are barbarians or that they have no concept of God, then you can accord yourself some degree, some greater degree of legitimacy and freedom from guilt. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. How has producing this book impacted your perception of yourself? You've had such a wonderful career, have done so many things. After you completed this book, how do you feel it's even changed you that much more? Um. Uh, okay. Uh, well, so, so the book, first of all, is a product of, of a life, you know, and of many lived experiences of my own, starting in my early family history, and then marriage with my wife, which I've described or discussed in uh, with a question earlier from Karen. Um, since the book came out, um, I guess it has, first of all, it has led to a subsequent book idea that I'm working on, which involves, so my book ends in 1945, and so the next book is about colonization and decolonization. Um, and uh, I, maybe I'll have an occasion to talk more with Karen about that at some subsequent time. But it's 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 enlivened me even more than I imagined to the challenges of overcoming the 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 
the separations, the chauvinisms that we have all been subjected to. And that's really my principal um, aim and hope in today's uh, moment, right, is getting African-Americans and Jamaicans and Haitians and Ghanaians and people in Britain of color and France and Brazil to, to, to dig beyond their national stories uh, and understand how rich and how powerful the underlying story that takes us back beyond our national histories and deeper into the past and relocates us in Africa and centers Africa on the, in history, how vital and urgent this is and how, how difficult it is because everything has been structured to prevent us from coming to terms with things in these ways. It's not impossible, but it's going to be a struggle. And, and I have borne this struggle so happily since the book came out, uh, having conversations like this and many others, just to try to turn on whatever little light bulbs that I can in the minds of my readers and to encourage them to carry the ball forward. It's not, this is not one person's struggle. This is the struggle of vast communities of people. And it's the struggle of connecting them together that we are all taking part in today. And, and it's just been a, uh, you know, it's, it, this has been the greatest purpose of this book and the greatest pleasure that I've had since the publication of the book, just knowing that there are people out there who want to be part of this and who are willing to bring their own thoughts and their own energies to this and are committed to this same struggle and are able to, 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 to persist. Uh, and even as you did, um, smile so nicely as we discuss topics that so often involve horror. Um, this has been an honor for me. Uh, and I just want to do my little piece. Mm, thank you, Michelle. Uh, and, you know, thank Micah for the question. And um, thank you, Howard French, uh, for answering the call. The The goal here, the purpose why we started Narrative and now Nubia, which is less than six months old, is to remember, to bring us back together because we mm -hmm. need each other like a strong fist to break the back of oppression and enslavement and racism and all of the things. But first, it starts with us knowing who we are. So we have mm -hmm. to remember who we are so we can come back together. And your book, I think, is uh, a must read for everybody. Uh, and I already know all the Nubians are going to get it. But our job is to spread the word. We are we are the carriers. We're, we're the brick layers. We are the people that are doing the work in the community. So uh, I thank you for coming. I want you to come back. You know, maybe we could talk about Ghana next time and then the next book and the next book, because this is family. You're home. Howard. Re remember, that's beautiful, Karen. That's thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of our special conversation. If you want more of this, join us in Narrative, K-N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E.com, Narrative.com. The K is silent, but we are not. Welcome home. Welcome. Welcome.